Hi, everyone, and welcome to She Talks Law, a Nixon Peabody podcast by women for women. We focus on the empowerment of women across industries and talk about the journey from I wish I could to I did it. We'll be sharing ideas on how to be the best versions of ourselves as we navigate challenges that women face every day in the professional world. I'm your host, Jen Javesky, an attorney in Nixon Peabody's Corporate Transactions Group. And today I'm joined by Dr. Lucy McBride, a primary care doctor in DC who has been seeing patients for more than 20 years. She's also a fellow podcast host for the Beyond the Prescription podcast. Dr. McBride believes that health is more than the absence of disease. It's about caring for our physical and mental health in tandem. Her goal is to help people live longer and better. And to do that, she helps her patients connect the dots between mental and physical health. So today, uh, Dr. McBride and I are going to discuss stress and burnout and then mental and physical health and wellness, of course. It's all interconnected. So welcome, Dr. McBride. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jen. I'm delighted to be here. Before we begin, uh, can you just introduce yourself and explain what led you down this path of wellness education uh, in addition to your medical practice? Sure. So I have always been interested in science and math ever since I was a youngster. I loved dissecting the fetal pig when I was in AP (laughs) biology class in high school. But more than anything, I loved talking to patients. I loved the idea of understanding the disease and then the human experience of illness. So I was the person in medical school. I trained at Harvard Medical School where we had to practice delivering bad news to actors who came in off the street to you know, be fake patients. Yeah. And I loved those moments where I was asked to establish a rapport and then deliver news like, you have prostate cancer. And those were the moments I relished the most because it required establishing trust, building you know, a relationship, and then dispensing complicated information so that people could understand it and then you know, take control of their health in ways that they knew how. So I've been seeing patients, like you said, for 20 some years. It's never been more clear to me, particularly on the heels of the pandemic, that our stories live in our bodies and that we are more than the sum total of our cholesterol and weight. Like patients are more than just a set of boxes to check. We are more than a bag of organs. And that we bring our whole selves, not only to the doctor's office, but to work, to parenting, to caregiving. And that health is about the 364 days a year that patients are not in my office. I think patients often think that health is about their annual checkup and kind of winning the physical and not dying. When to me, health is about a laddering up from self-awareness to acceptance to agency. And I'll say that again, because I think we think of health as a outcome when health to me is really a process. It is a process of self-discovery, understanding the complex parts that we contain in our body, in our ecosystem, mental health, physical health, body mechanics, nutrition, relationship to food in addition to what we eat. And then it's it's a laddering up from that awareness to acceptance of things we can't control, like other people, our job and the structure within it, you know, genetic predispositions to breast cancer. And then the higher level health is where we have agency. We feel like we have some control over our internal world and our external world 
to the extent that is possible. And so it's always been clear to me and no more clear than it has been in the last three years that patients and people are wired and tired. They're walking around not knowing who to trust. They see their doctor maybe once a year, maybe not at all. And then when they don't feel well, they don't know who to call. And so it's never been more obvious to me that people need to know who to trust and how to reclaim some agency over their everyday health and well-being. Absolutely. There's so many different sources out there too that claim to be reliable sources. And you know, I'm sure we'll get into this in a little bit, but yes. Yeah. So this is a great segue because you shared in an article for MSNBC uh, that the American Psychological Association reports that stress among Americans has reached alarming levels. And while we may be seeing COVID numbers decrease, we can't deny that we've all gone through collective trauma over the last few years. Can you just speak to how such high levels of stress are manifesting in our patients' physical and mental health? Yeah, so I think that we all experience distress in our lives, right? We can't sanitize the human experience and not experience distress. And I think, you know, the the pandemic really laid bare how vulnerable we are to not only public health emergencies and viruses, but to despair and anxiety and fear, grief, loss. And for the first time, many people, many of my patients had to reckon with their mental health. They had not thought about the fact that their mental health informed their physical health. They had not thought about the fact that their, you know, fear over their children's or elderly parents' well-being might show up in their sleep or their stress or their habits, like their relationship with alcohol, for example. So, you know, this has been clear to me for a long time and anyone who's seeing patients that our emotional, physical mental health are all intersected. We don't have a partition between, you know, head and the body down, right? There's no, there's no like divider between our, our brains and bodies. And so given the fact that we've all been under more stress in the last three years, it's not surprising to you perhaps that I have been seeing more elevated blood pressures. People are struggling with substance use disorder more than before and not even substance use disorder, but just people are drinking more. People are gravitating towards sweets and comfort foods more than before. People are wired and tired as I said before. And you know, our blood pressures, our cardiovascular health, our ability to take care of our basic human needs is often sacrificed first when we're feeling stressed. So it's not that stress is new. It's just that I think we have a heightened level of it because of the last three years. Yeah, that makes sense. It certainly impacts the process, right? They, everybody wants that, that outcome to live a healthy life, to be, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people ideally want to have that outcome of, of good health, good wellness. Um, and certainly having a heightened level of stress and these traumatic events can impact that process and that outcome. And also there's right. along the way too. Go ahead. Sorry. I think we define health in a very narrow way yeah. as if health is, I have good blood pressure, I have good cholesterol and I'm not dying when health is about the painful and marvelous process of living. Mm-hmm. And so I will often ask my patients who maybe have normal blood pressure, decent looking lab results, but who don't feel well, 
let's talk about your North Star. What is it you live for? Like, what is it that makes you feel healthy and sort of present in your body? What makes you feel sort of self-actualized, if you will? And honestly, sometimes people just start crying when I ask that question. A lot of people do. I had someone in my office yesterday who, you know, she's a classic sort of overachiever, right? She's a, a woman in her midlife, teenage kids, busy, big job, you know, stable marriage, normal blood tests. But, you know, just by looking at her, I can tell that she's not feeling well. I mean, her shoulders are kind of up to here. She's kind of clammy. She was running late. Uh, much like I was to this podcast, um, <laughs> she, uh, you know, she's just has sort of vague, non-specific complaints from stomach aches to poor sleep to drinking too much coffee and then drinking too much wine. Not in an addictive sense, but just sort of riding this roller coaster of stress and sort of being a passive consumer of all of the inputs that are coming at her. And so we talked to her quite a bit about how to feel more in control of her day, which is health. I mean, that's health is having a sense of agency and awareness and consciousness over the choices we make from deciding what you're going to have for lunch to deciding that instead of scrolling through Instagram for that hour, which seems relaxing in the moment to taking a moment to sit outside and just listen to the birds with no screens. I mean, the minute to minute execution of our own intentions is part of health. And also how we all define health is different too. I mean, what you just said, everybody's picture of health, quote unquote, looks different, right? And I think also that that leads really nicely into talking about burnout. Stress and burnout often go hand in hand, especially um, you know in our occupations, but also not necessarily even in the professional world. There are, everybody experiences burnout in different ways. And and so something that I found interesting is, you know, obviously I work in a field where we see a lot, a very, very high level of attorney burnout. You know, in 2019, the World Health Organization officially classified job burnout stemming from chronic workplace stress as a diagnosis and included that in the international classification of diseases, which for those non-medical people out there is a handbook that guides the medical profession. It defines burnout as a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. And I know that I've experienced workplace, chronic workplace stress a time or two in my career, but Many people who don't even step foot into a workplace experience burnout. So what is the definition of burnout in your opinion? So I think the World Health Organization defines burnout as the combination of emotional and physical exhaustion, feelings of negativism, and a sense of decreased personal efficacy. Basically, in layman's terms, that's running on empty, running on fumes. And I wrote an article in The Atlantic in 2021 arguing that, indeed, those are real phenomenon. At the same time, it's not reserved just to the workplace. People who are caregiving for elderly parents, caregiving for children, people who are walking around trying to do the challenging act of being human in a pandemic can easily suffer from burnout. Um, It's not that we need to medicalize normal or medicalize despair in every case. It's that we need to acknowledge and name, normalize the fact that we experience stress. 
the question isn't, do you experience stress? Do you experience moments of burnout? It's what are your tools? What is in your coping kit to manage the inevitable stresses that are part of the human condition? And one of the things that I commonly talk about with patients is how easily we forget that a lot of the tools to manage stress and burnout, we have internally, inside. You know, the wellness industry likes us to think that you have to participate in a retreat, that you have to buy this certain set of vitamins, that you have to wear these certain leggings and go to this certain class. And I would argue, I do argue with my patients that just meeting our basic biological needs or acknowledging that we have them is the first step. Sometimes it's just about eating lunch. Sometimes you don't need to be in psychotherapy. You just need to make sure that you are fed and that you register satiety in the middle of the day to address and optimize your attention, your focus for mood stability. And then so you don't you know, overeat at six when you get home, drink too much wine, and then feel remorseful the next day. Sometimes the simplest things are the strongest interventions to help us manage. Right. And one thing that I'm always thinking about, probably because I'm like in the thick of it, I've got a two and a half and a five-year-old at home, and we're always in the thick of just trying to make sure that we get them back to equilibrium before the next temper tantrum or the next you know, panic attack or whatever it is, you know, they sense, they feel so much stress and anxiety when their world is out of whack, when any small piece of their world is out of whack. And I think that that totally is true for adults too, you know, when, and when we sense that our equilibrium is being affected our and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that our fight or flight starts to kick in and that's when the stress starts to increase the anxiety um, and, you know, prolonged experiences of that, I would imagine manifest themselves in the form of burnout and ultimately feels like burnout. I am not a medical professional, but that's sort of like how I see, how I see it right now. Yeah. I mean, remember we have this inherent built-in survival system. It's mm -hmm. called our fight or flight axis, as you just said. And it allows us to not walk into traffic. It allows us to turn in our term papers on time. It allows us to show up at work and get the job done, do the presentation, right? We need a little adrenaline to survive. Otherwise, we'd, we'd walk into traffic. But what happens when our adrenaline, cortisol, stress hormones are activated consistently, repeatedly, and out of proportion to the actual level of threat is that we are wired and tired. We don't sleep well. We feel heart palpitations, nausea, stomach upset. And then what do humans do when they're under distress is we tend to seek behaviors and strategies to numb. So we overeat, we drink alcohol, we you know shout at the person uh, who cuts us off in traffic. You know, and none of these things are necessarily in an individual person toxic or harmful, but they certainly can be over time. So without a consciousness of our fight or flight axis and its triggers, we can become very quickly the victims of our own biochemistry. Mm -hmm. So my goal with patients is to put them in the driver's seat of their health instead of being in the back of the bus and riding the waves of adrenaline and cortisol. And frankly, some of us become addicted to that sort of fight or flight axis. Some of us become 
accustomed to being in a constant state of what I call vigilance, like a constant state of survive, fight, you know, kind of protect, protect, protect. And that vigilance, that sort of moat that we build around us, we, 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 can, we can start to associate that with success. We can start to associate vigilance and sweaty palms and drinking coffee and staying up late with success when actually we're usually successful despite vigilance. And if we could acknowledge the vigilance, acknowledge the way we try to wall off painful experiences and acknowledge that open spigot of adrenaline and try to turn the volume down on it and calibrate it better to the actual threat, then we would really be feeling more in control of our health. We could let the shoulders drop, the jaw unlock, have less headaches, migraines, sleep better. And, you know, these are really, really subtle but important ways to think about health that is beyond your cholesterol levels. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And for our listeners, what trends are you seeing as it relates to burnout with women professionals in particular? Well, one of the things that's having a moment is menopause. So thank, thankfully, um, as, a, as, a, as a middle-aged woman myself, it's particularly relevant, but women have long been deprived sort of nuanced information about their hormonal health, about their sexual health. And so I'm delighted that finally we're talking about it in a more public way. I mean, I've been talking about hormone replacement therapy and you know the relative low risk when we start hormone replacement therapy within 10 years of women's last menstrual period. And what, I'm, what I've been trying to do and what the lay press is now trying to do is make up for the fear-based headlines that came out in 2002 when the Women's Health Initiative came out, basically saying, you know, hormones are bad for you, which, you know, forced women around the country, around the world to all of a sudden stop their hormones. And then everyone was hot flashing, night sweating, not having sex, having, you know, premature osteoporosis and cardiovascular disease. My point is that finally we are having this moment where we are acknowledging the nuances of hormone replacement therapy because the absence of hormones, which is the definition of menopause, when we are no longer making adequate estrogen and progesterone from our ovaries has significant effects on our sleep, our sense of well-being, our cognitive abilities, our sex life, our sex drive. And we have done a pretty terrible job in medicine at countenancing phenomena that you can't see, that you can't measure in blood. And so finally, our women are fed up. They're like, wait a minute, I have read the data. I see that if we start hormone replacement therapy within the last 10 years of the menstrual cycle, that my risk for cardiovascular disease, premature dementia, osteoporosis is down and my quality of life is up. So wait a minute, why aren't we offering women this discussion? And that's one of my favorite conversations because you know it's very difficult to undo a fear-based narrative. Um, but you know, people are smart and people see the data. And it's it's a joy to be able to countenance these invisible components of people's lives that really make up their everyday health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I would think that having conversations around some of those invisible um, invisible issues brings those to light, helps women address issues that are underlying and can help to ultimately combat some of the burnout. Yeah. I mean, if you're a 51 year old woman, which is the average age of menopause in the U S and you're having hot flashes, night sweats, you're not sleeping very well. 
And then you kind of counterbalance that by drinking a whole bunch of coffee in the morning. You're showing up at work, you're sweaty, you have hot flashes at work and you're trying to focus and give presentations and, you know, your kids are teenagers and you're irritable and anxious and not feeling like yourself. You may have the best cholesterol in the world. You may have a normal body weight when you see your doctor, but you don't feel well. Mm -hmm. It's not that hormone replacement therapy is the right thing for every single person. It's that we need to talk about how unhinged we can feel without hormones and how important it is to have these conversations to ourselves and then with our doctors. Yeah, absolutely. And also (laughs) having conversations with real doctors, right? I mean, I'm very guilty myself. I scroll endlessly on Dr. Google to try and figure out exactly what is going on with me for every little ailment that I am going through at that time. One of your goals when you started your newsletter and podcast was to share information rooted in evidence for those of us that are guilty of that scrolling endlessly for wellness advice and health hacks. What's your take on this, the wellness industry? I mean, I know that that is a very big question and it is totally loaded and that's somewhat intentional, but what's your, what's your take on the growing wellness industry? And, you know, do you have advice for our audience out there that might be partaking in some of this doomsday scrolling? Jen, it's a great question. And it's part of the reason why I'm writing this book with Simon & Schuster. It's part of the reason I'm doing a lot of this messaging. I'm reaching 23,000 people a week with my newsletter on Substack because I I feel bad for most people who don't have access to truth-based information. Mm -hmm. Remember that 80 million Americans in this country do not have a primary care doctor. And if they do, they probably have five minutes And then when they don't feel well, they may not even get through on the phone. So then they're stuck online figuring out DIY, what's going on. So as you know, you know, the U.S. medical system is failing people. It is not meeting people where they are. It is treating people like a bag of organs, a set of boxes to check. Mm -hmm. And then people don't feel well. The wellness industry is capitalizing on the failures of modern medicine to see people as whole humans. And I think, you know, many people in the wellness space are well-intentioned, but I think the problem there is that practitioners of nutrition and fitness and sort of mindfulness, while they may be well-intended, suggest that, for example, nutrition is necessary and sufficient for health, that fitness is necessary and sufficient for health, that mindfulness is necessary and sufficient in health. In other words, health is about the intersection of all of these components. It's about awareness of how those different parts of our selves interreact. It's about, for example, in the nutrition space, like most people I know and see as patients understand that kale is healthy for you and that McDonald's French fries are less healthy. The problem isn't knowledge. The challenge is understanding our relationship with food. And even before that, understanding what is our goal? In other words, if your goal is to reduce your cholesterol, then yes, we should think about reducing your intake of McDonald's French fries. But if you're healthy and you're relationship with food is normal, then I have no problem with you having McDonald's french fries. Like that's a treat, that's a reward. In other words, 
it's not just about eat healthy, exercise more, meditate, and you'll be well. In fact, I see people all the time who eat healthy, exercise, and meditate, and they're not well. So I think what the wellness industry accidentally does is it steers us away from the concept of health integration. It steers us away from taking a hard look in the mirror and facing the uncomfortable realities of our lives. You know, there's no amount of kind of yoga or kale (laughs) with all due respect for yoga and kale. I love them both, but there's no amount of that that is going to help you understand that your childhood trauma, say your parents got divorced when you were a child, you were bullied, whatever, that there's no amount of, of, of sort of wellness speak that is going to address your particular vulnerabilities as a person, your emotional health triggers that then feed into your behaviors and habits every day. You know, we tell ourselves stories every day, right? We have, we have narratives that we tell ourselves. We have to be aware of the stories we tell ourselves and understand that some of those stories are not rooted in reality and that we unintentionally organize our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors around stories that aren't always true. Every single patient I see, myself included, has a narrative. Like, I am unlovable. I am overweight and a failure. I am an imposter. I have to work harder than everybody else to look like I know what I'm doing. I am not honest and I have to protect myself against being found out. We also have positive narratives. Like I am a worthy person. I am loved. I am a good mother, right? You have, it's not like it's all doom and gloom. I'm just saying that like, we have to address these narratives that we wrote in our minds when we were kiddos and that then inform how we relate to food, how we relate to our movement as, you know, gym goers, yoga, yoga practitioners, Mm -hmm. how we, how we ingest news because we are victims of confirmation bias. If we think that we are X, then we are going to find the information that reminds us that we are X. And then we're going to just continue to repeat the same patterns and repeat the same story. And without pulling the curtain back on what it means to be human and who you are and what stories we're telling ourselves that inform the ecosystem, we're really not being honest with, with ourselves about, about how to be healthy. Okay, so that sounds like a lot of kind of woo-woo <laughs> spiritual stuff. I also will say that there's just a boatload of misinformation out there. I mean, take, for example, the narratives around hormone replacement therapy. I mean, the Women's Health Initiative was a really well done study, but it was so flawed. And the interpretations of that study created a narrative in this public space saying that hormones cause breast cancer. The evidence is clear that the biggest risk factor for developing breast cancer is being a woman. The second biggest risk factor is being a woman with breasts. The third biggest risk factor is being a woman with breasts who's older. So there's an association between hormones and breast cancer, but that's just the association of being a woman and having estrogen and the potential for developing breast cancer. In other words, I spend a fair amount of time trying to correct these narratives that get, you know, deeply entrenched in in the media and then in our psyches. And then, you know, when women get together or men too, we tend to kind of confirm these intrinsic biases and then decide that we know better than the medical establishment. And we might 
think we know better because our doctor's not even answering the phone. So of course we might have to look to ourselves and our friends for advice. It's funny you say all that because I recently saw, I can't remember where I saw it, but I recently saw someone post a hashtag that said, there's a juice for that. You know, kind of like the the saying, there's an app for that, or there's an app for everything. There's a juice for that. I don't know of many juices that are really going to hone in on some of those underlying issues that you're talking about. Some of those past traumas that are going to help you, you know, get through those emotions. So while there may be crystals out there and juices, and like you said, no offense to anything like that. I mean, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the wellness industry as well, but there are underlying factors and things that are just not going to be addressed by a juice, by a crystal, by a yoga, by, you know, any of that. Um, right. I mean, I'd rather, pe- I'd rather people have a juice than, you know, a sugary Coke, oh, sure. right? But sure. we cannot expect a juice to address our human vulnerabilities, fears, and challenging experience that we then haven't brought to the surface of our consciousness. Um, We also then, you know, because there's a whole marketplace and there's, you know, a profit motive here from the wellness industry, it's a, it's a, it's like a $5 billion industry. And because placebo effect is real, I mean, there are a lot of people buying these products. And I mean, this is just to state the obvious, but it's a lot easier to drink a juice than it is to sit with uncomfortable feelings Mm -hmm. that stem from a childhood experience that then inform the way you parent or the way you show up at work or your sense of worth. Mm -hmm. Because those matter because when you feel stressed, anxious, unworthy, then you tend to drink more, you tend to sleep less, you tend to have higher blood pressure. You know, people with cardiovascular disease, not surprisingly, are people who have experienced more stress and trauma. I mean, there's no absence of data to show that adverse childhood experiences or the ACEs show up in people's physical health. They are my patients. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, we all have experienced childhood adversity. I mean, everyone has on different axes and to different degrees. But it's important for people to realize that you don't have to have been in the Iraq war or have seen your loved one die on 9-11 to have experienced adversity that then informs perhaps in a good way, but also in perhaps a negative way, your relationship with food, your relationship with alcohol, your relationship to work, and then informs your sense of self-worth that then applies to your health. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about, I mean, we've talked about how burnout can manifest, right? And what it, what it ultimately can look like and what stress can look like. But I'm curious, what are some of the best ways that you recommend that we combat burnout, uh, both for ourselves personally and for our colleagues in the workplace? So I'd start with the basics, which is, you know, recognize that you're normal, that, you know, women in particular, but we all run the risk of not giving ourselves permission to be human. Mm -hmm. You know, it's Guilty. normal. Yeah, it's nor- it's normal. Like we just sometimes you just need to kind of give yourself a moment and say it's okay. Like I'm doing the best I can. Just practice self-compassion and empathy, which mm-hmm. you know, sounds like a page out of the wellness book, but you know, guess what? Doctors are about wellness too. If I'm not about wellness, then you know, why am I here? Right. Um so giving ourselves permission to have bad days, bad weeks, to not be the perfect parent, to not have nailed the presentation to, you know, have, 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 you know, taken a mental health day. Like it's okay. The next thing is to identify 
the places where you are feeling lack of agency and to then try to troubleshoot it. And sometimes that is a tall order to do with yourself. So, you know, asking for help is a skill. This is what I teach my kids. Like, obviously I want my kids to, you know, take the test and do the work and, but you know, I'm a big believer in teamwork. And I think insofar as our health is informed by different components, and sometimes we need help in different quadrants, we need to ask for help. For example, if you're having trouble with your relationship with food, for example, like you know to eat healthy, but you're a binge eater or a restrictor, and you kind of repeat the same patterns every day, and you've connected the dots that your burnout is worse when you haven't eaten enough and then you feel ashamed of overeating. If that's an issue, like name it mm-hmm. and acknowledge where it may have come from and acknowledge the sort of things you tell yourself that make you think that's okay. And then see a nutritionist, you know, get an app to help you stay accountable, experience satiety at lunchtime, make sure you're getting lots of protein. Every single meal should have protein. If your burnout is informed by grief, loss, just a sense of like of being human with a medical condition, ask for help. I think it's basically about acknowledging you're human, giving yourself permission to feel uncomfortable things, recognizing what, what element of your health is sort of the critter in the wood pile. Like, are you experiencing chronic pain? Are you experiencing, you know, fear? Are you depressed? And just take stock of your internal world and then ask for all ourselves and I'll take care of it. I'll fix that. I will make sure that everybody else around me is, is happy and healthy and, you know, doing their best at the expense of my own health sometimes or my own wellness. And so changing that narrative that asking for help, there is absolutely nothing wrong with asking for help, owning it, learning from it, um, you know, and normalizing it, allowing, empowering others to be able to ask for help when they need it. I think that's right. We hear this word then sort of figuring out how to bolster our kit of coping tools. And again, it doesn't need to be fancy or formal. Mm-hmm. Your coping kit could consist right now of, you know, taking a walk with your friend on Saturday and, you know, watching your favorite TV show in, in the evenings. I would ask you though, to expand that coping toolkit. Could you journal for 30 minutes before you go to bed? I mean, journaling is a wonderful way to kind of download complicated thoughts, to put them on paper so they are less scary. And then also to be really honest with ourselves about what's going on internally. Um, Could you add some more high intensity aerobic activity to help discharge some of that adrenaline that lives in your veins and causing you to have high blood pressure? And, you know, with a family history of heart disease, you really need to get that blood pressure down. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you see a therapist or a counselor once a week to help kind of have a tennis partner, so to speak, navigating the complex art of being a human. Um, Could you have a more open conversation with your partner than, you know, I think you would probably agree with this, but, you know, the most intimate friendships I have in my life are founded on shared vulnerability. They're not founded on shared bragging or perfectionism, right? right? My deepest friendships are with women who I can share my sadness and anxiety and vulnerability with. Mm -hmm. I also share my joys and wins and excitement and they're there for me too. But I think that we have to recognize that it's normal to have vulnerability. It's normal to have fear. It's normal to have shame. Mm -hmm. And when we can name those things and then connect the dots between how we feel, how we think, and then how we behave, then we really are off to the race of healthy blood pressure is better. Heart rate is better. 
our risk for diabetes is reduced, our cortisol and adrenaline are lower, we don't you know, bring body fat into our mid midsections. Look, you can be the most self-aware person and still get breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, you know, get hit by a bus. But I would argue that my patients who are in their 80s, who are facing, you know, hard diagnoses or at the end of their lives, the ones who are the healthiest are the people who have had that perspective on health and who have lived with intention mm-hmm. and given themselves permission to be human. That's a great way to end it, Lucy. I think this has all been so wonderful. And thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your insights on today's episode. If you're listening and enjoyed our conversation, subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We want to hear from you. Like and follow She Talks Law and Beyond the Prescription on Instagram and Facebook and email your comments and topic suggestions to shetalkslaw at nixonpeabody.com. And finally, the views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of Nixon Peabody and should not be construed as legal advice. This podcast is not intended to create